Hey, Mike. <laughs> Hi, Caleb. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Oh, I'm doing all right. Uh, what are you drinking tonight? I am going back to my roots in uh, cocktails, uh, having a gin martini, stirred, oh. not shaken. Well, obviously. What kind of gin are you using? I'm using the uh, the Half Moon Bay local gin, so I, I quite like it, and um, I feel I feel like I gotta just keep using that as much as I can to, you know, I know what Tanqueray tastes like. I know what um, uh, my my uh, my old uh, Bombay Sapphire tastes like, but still getting a, a feel for how I can use this, uh, this other one. So I see. And what about your vermouth? Uh, just the martini vermouth. And oh, I've got, uh, some, you can upgrade that, man. I know I've got some pimento, uh, olives, large cocktail olives and, um, drinking in a little cocktail glass, a little martini glass. So what's so your f- ratio? Uh, three, one. Oh, wow. That's pretty wet. Yeah. Yeah. I like vermouth and I also put extra, uh, brine in. So Jeez. Dirty. This is practically spring break. Yeah, I don't like it like the Arrested Development uh, folks do. With <laughs> I like chilled gin in a glass. Thank yeah, you very much. Exactly. What are you drinking? Uh, tonight, I am having a Hemingway daiquiri. Uh, it's a recipe out of the PDT book. It is a variation on the daiquiri, which um, daiquiri is just uh, like white rum, uh, lime juice, and sugar. Very simple. Um, if you're into daiquiris, the Death and Company book has is obsessed with daiquiris and has like a whole uh, chapter on variations. But uh, this one is apparently Ernest Hemingway, the author, um, was diabetic and couldn't drink the sugar. So this one actually takes away the sugar component and substitutes grapefruit juice and maraschino, mm. um, which I thought we would make it taste like grapefruit because usually that's a pretty overpowering flavor. But it turns out it's, it's the maraschino is winning the battle. So all right. it, it has a very strong maraschino flavor. So, all right. That's very cocktails. That, that wraps up cocktail talk. <laughs> so if you fast forwarded, hello, welcome back. Um, so we, uh, we skipped last, uh, last episode. We, uh, um, we succumbed to summer scheduling. We did have some summer scheduling. Who knows what's going to happen with this upcoming 4th of July holiday. We still have not decided. So fingers crossed. Um, <laughs> we but, will keep you posted. But yes, there have been some some changes in the ranks over at Tesla. And so this this week, I wanted to unpack uh, some of the autopilot team uh, changes and what that might mean for Tesla and who who some of the new people on the team are. Oh, and interesting. How they, how they might contribute. Yeah. Yeah. What's going on over there? Yes. Yeah, so um a, a couple days back, uh, there was a announcement that broke that Tesla had hired um, a new person to the team um, uh, by the name of Andre Karpathy, um, who Elon knew pretty well due to his time previously at OpenAI. So uh, he was an AI researcher at OpenAI, which is a nonprofit funded by Elon Musk. And so this news broke. And it was that he was going to be the new director of AI uh, for uh, for Vision Autopilot Vision. And so, yeah, um, go ahead. Quick question: So Elon was uh, was either the primary or one of the funders for OpenAI, which is this research institute um, that was set up so that, uh, if I'm understanding correctly, so that uh, AI wouldn't just belong to the for profit corporations; that it would uh, try and advance AI in the interests of sort of more of a benevolent. Uh, intelligence like sort of the for the good of all kind of thing yes um but then is doesn't poaching someone from that organization to work at your for-profit organization kind of defeat the whole purpose of setting up that non-profit organization 
It's not clear. Uh, I think <laughs> OpenAI open is still growing quite large. I think uh, it is intriguing that uh, Elon Musk has, has used that. Um, I mean, I, I, think, I think it's pretty fair that he would know who, this, who Andre was and uh, sort of worked with him a bit. Um, it's like, you know, you've hired someone to work for the EPA or something because they're experts in pollution, and then they get hired by a petroleum company to figure out how to get around pollution control or something. I, I don't know. It, maybe that's not the, a great analogy, but it, it feels a little bit weird. Yeah, I think it's a little bit of crossing the streams. Um, but what's interesting is uh, the former um, uh, person who was sort of overseeing autopilot before Chris Latner joined was from SpaceX. So Elon sort of uh, has a, a permeable mesh between his companies uh, and apparently now the nonprofits that he works with um, in terms <laughs> of the staff uh, and sort of applies them where they're most needed. And obviously the team members have a choice, but uh, it's probably pretty hard to say no to Elon Musk when he makes a really great offer. Um, and so he's joined, and I saw that news. I was like, that's interesting. Someone now working on director of AI and autopilot vision. I wonder what's going on with Chris Latner, because it, it mentioned that, that Andre's going to report directly to Elon Musk. And if you're going to report directly to Elon Musk and then bypass the VP of autopilot software, that's a little bit of an unusual situation. <laughs> that seems a bit dysfunctional. So then about 30 or 40 minutes later, news broke that Chris Latner was leaving Tesla. Uh, and we had done an episode on Chris Latner when he joined Tesla in January. And so I thought it, it made sense to discuss sort of what's, what Chris did at, the, at Tesla and, and some of the reasons they gave for, for why he's moving on. And then uh, unpack sort of what Andre's experiences and background is and how that applies to what Tesla needs. So, yeah, that's what I thought we could we could pull through and dissect. That sounds pretty good. Um, yeah, so we did a few episodes ago, I guess, what was it? It was almost, it was six months ago, right, that, that Chris Latter yeah. joined? Yeah, so he, he joined in January, January, January 30th, so we probably did a February episode about that. All right. So by my math, that's probably, you know, a dozen or so episodes ago. Uh, I could probably look this up, but I, I try not to do too much preparation before any, before any of our episodes. Um, so a previous episode of uh, the Tesla show uh, covered this. Uh, Chris Latner was a uh, big name in uh, Apple software development. Oh, I mean, yeah, huge. I mean, he not 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 even sort of tangentially. I mean, he worked at Apple for uh, a decade plus, I think, and and uh, came in through the compiler experience he had, and then wrote Swift uh, as a as a sort of skunkworks project that then became the new de facto language of what all Apple software and Apple third party developers will be using going forward. So. Yeah, really important person in the Apple ecosystem as well as just generally a highly respected engineer and, and sort of really well known, sort of to the extent that he even was on stage at a previous WWDC, one of the Apple keynotes, which is a pretty tough uh, gig to get. Uh, and they don't really have many software engineers on stage there. So, um, yeah, he, he was definitely a very well-known and well-respected and in our discussion felt like would be uh, quite good at attracting talent and that his experience on sort of deeper, lower-level systems, very high-precision engineering, um, really good at sort of processes and 
understanding how to make software run 100% of the time. Compilers are notorious for needing to be quite uh, quite solid. Um, that that would be very useful for Tesla. And it turns out that uh, in both Tesla statements and Chris's public statements over Twitter, that um, it just seems like it didn't work out. So he's been there for about almost exactly six months. And Tesla's official statement on on him was quite terse, and it was, Chris just wasn't the right fit for Tesla, and we've decided to make a change. We wish him the best. Um, so to me, that reads as, uh, they say, we've decided to make a change. And when a company makes a statement saying, we've decided, it usually means the company's choice. And then, um, so, and, and then he went on to say uh, in his website, which he then later removed, from the website, but was there briefly. In the end, Elon and I, so this is Chris Latner, in the end, Elon and I agreed that he and I did not work well together and that I should leave, so I did. Um, and then on <laughs> Twitter, he said, turns out that Tesla isn't a good fit for me after all. I'm interested to hear about interesting roles for a seasoned engineering leader, exclamation point. Um, so yeah, it, it just, I, I don't think we need to go into too many <laughs> speculation. Who knows? Uh, only only the folks involved really know. But the the yeah. facts are he's moved on, and it doesn't sound like um, it was a hundred percent a great uh, a great environment, or you know he had some new thing lined up that he just wasn't you know super excited about, or didn't believe in Tesla. It was just a personnel personality, some something related to that, just not being a great fit. Sure. And, you know, it happens and we, no one, we will not have any, uh, or we'll never have enough information to know one way or the other. So there's really no sense in speculating. And ultimately it's probably for the best that if it's not a good culture fit that he does leave rather than staying there and, you know, irritations festering or, or any other of the sort of dysfunctional things that can happen when there's not a good, uh, not a good match um yeah and, yeah fail fast right yeah and i mean six months is a pretty good i think that's actually a pretty good time frame for figuring that out i don't think it's necessary i mean there are certain situations where you could find that out within a month if it was just <laughs> like really something terribly wrong happened but generally you would meet people and get to know them and you'd have some some time especially at the vp level since he was a vp of autopilot software you got to get your bearings for at least a month or two. Then you start putting some processes in place and start hiring people. And, uh, you know, you're interacting with Elon at some interval along that way. And they're in this sort of challenging period as well, where even Chris in his resume, which he posted online, he updated with his Tesla accomplishments. So I, I wanted to go through that. One of the things he calls out first is that uh, when he joined, they were in the midst of this hardware transition from the hardware one uh, based primarily on the mobile eye for the vision side of things to this hardware too, um, which needed to use all their in-house design Tesla vision hardware or software rather. And so uh, he says, and I quote, the team was facing many tough challenges given the nature of the transition. My, con my primary contributions over the last five months were the following. And so he went through them. And when I was looking at all of these, I was like, wow, that's actually quite... <laughs> quite a lot that this team has done in the past five months because he was there right before they launched the first hardware to autopilot features because when those first cars were shipping there was no autopilot features and so he joined and about a couple weeks later they started rolling out functionality and he rolled he discusses like 
the local roads, the parallel auto parking, the high-speed auto steer, the summon, lane departure warning, automatic lane change, low-speed automatic emergency braking, high-speed automatic emergency braking, the full-speed auto steer, the pedal misapplication mitigation, which hasn't really been talked about, but I think that's where they're doing some software tricks to make sure people don't accidentally hit the accelerator and run into a wall when they think they're hitting the brake, um, the auto high beams, uh, side collision avoidance, full speed automatic emergency braking, the perpendicular auto park, and then this final silky smooth performance uh, for <laughs> the uh, uh, latitude, I guess it's a longitudinal control. Um, yeah, so, the, yeah. Uh, it's, it's just kind of interesting too that like switching to hardware too, at least from a, and again, this is not speculating towards anything that, that um, he went through, but uh, generally speaking, when you do some sort of big refactor or something, there's always this idea of coming back to parity if you've done a big rewrite or changed your underlying architecture. And from an engineering perspective, that is like the least rewarding thing to be working on too, because yeah. you're actually like doing all of this work and you're you're completing all of these milestones and, and basically achieving all of these features, but essentially you're getting zero credit for it because all you're doing is is sort of filling in a deficiency in most people's eyes right because the previous system did this and and now you're just doing that too so usually you always get this sort of little endorphin rush every time you ship a feature and you know that's what kind of keeps you going through the the difficulties of actually like the the hard slog of actually getting all this stuff built and shipped um and yeah so so when you're actually sort of starting in a hole and and trying to uh get back up to the previous level uh that is just some extremely uh emotionally difficult engineering work to do yeah and when you have both the financial pressures of the company expecting that they were going to tesla said they expected they were going to be able to do this transition uh with mobilize help and having the mobilize chips on the board so that they would sort of be able to validate their own software and then switch over gracefully when they were confident that it was at parity already so they could have done this sort of in secret um but that didn't happen and so there was this extra pressure of okay we're now selling cars that can't do uh any of these autopilot features we need to get this fixed so it wasn't even sort of this um peaceful transition it it definitely felt like there was this huge pent-up demand and to your point every time any of these features rolled out and there were seven major feature releases in the time he was uh at tesla and and worked on these features uh people were like well why can't it do this why can't it do this oh my goodness it's still not good enough um (laughs) that that's like that's a negative a really tough emotional thing where you've just worked really hard to do something that mobile has had over a decade to accomplish and you've recreated in some number of months and most of the time you'd be pat on the back as that's amazing and yet publicly people are not satisfied so that right and I, meanwhile your cousins over in elon's other company are dropping empty rockets out of low earth orbit and landing them on robotics drone ships in the middle of the pacific ocean so you know it's it's a tough environment to be working in yes and so one of the other so then he goes in on the, his resume and talks about some of the new things he had been doing which uh you know we, we just don't get too much official information from tesla employees about how they even internally position the work they do um, right. since we really just get elon discussing things the quarterly calls the investor updates and the shareholder notes so this is one of the first times we've really gotten a high level executive who sort of was overseeing an entire program talking about how they position 
the work they've done. And this and, stuff is, has stayed up too. So we can assume that this was cleared or at least tacitly approved. Yeah. Yeah. This is still up on his website as part of his resume and, and it's not super detailed. I mean, there, there, it's quite broad. I don't think there's, there's only one percentage included in the entire thing and, and like no programming languages mentioned, no pr- very specific details. It's, it's quite broad, but I think for, for our discussion, it's still quite useful that so one, one of the major bullets he says is one of Tesla's huge advantages in the autonomous driving space is that it has tens of thousands of cars already on the road. Okay, we know that. We built infrastructure to take advantage of this, allowing the collection of image and video data from this fleet, as well as building big data infrastructure in the cloud to process and use it. So, a lot of buzzwords there. Yeah, but he links to two electric articles about uh, the two things we talked about, that uh, the EULA agreement to allow Tesla to upload video data for the sign detection and the lane detection. Mm-hmm. And then also one where we were mentioning how users or customers were noticing big increases in the amount of data uploaded from their cars uh, somewhat recently. And so him linking to those electric articles is kind of a tacit indication that that's what he's talking about. Um, so I don't think it's a huge stretch there, but just sort of knowing that that is new and he's claiming part of his work in the past six months is, uh, you know, new information and good to know that, uh, you know, that was one of the projects he was working on and is, is not necessarily something that they had in their back pocket for the past year and just haven't turned it on. It's probably something that's actually new, um, which is, you know, always exciting when there's something new that was actually built in the past five months and not just something <laughs> that, you know, wasn't ready to be turned on or was having issues or something. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's, there's a few things in here about like new things or, or, uh, rewriting or refactoring things. Um, I mean, uh, as I said earlier, I don't want to get, you, you really can't know, but it's, it's, it is kind of, uh, almost irresistible to get drawn into the sort of criminal criminology of trying to figure out <laughs> what this is going on. Like if he's saying I advocated for, and he's saying Elon and I didn't get a, along together, does that mean he was fighting Elon to do this kind of thing? Or, you know, I, I, I think that there's endless fodder for, uh, conspiracy theories and, and, uh, various other theories on, on this. And it's, yeah, probably not worth it. Yeah, I think that the the one thing I would say is that in reading his resume about his time at Tesla, the amount of time spent talking about refactoring, uh, advocating for rewrites of things, <laughs> uh, process and infrastructure improvements, you get the feeling that his deep, low-level compiler, like writing a software language, uh, you know, do it, measure a hundred times, cut once sort of uh, philosophy might not have been the best fit for uh, what Tesla wants to accomplish as fast as humanly possible. <laughs> well, you, I don't know. You don't really don't want to go with the move fast and break things philosophy either though. So, yeah. Yeah. So I think that that is the only thing that is sort of an echo or shadow I'm seeing here that potentially the things we thought would be really good about him coming in um, might not have been as well received, especially in the context of, I know you and I have had these discussions working together when we want to get a feature out and it's time to rewrite, like we could rewrite something and it will improve our speed in the next iteration, but it will you know, increase our or decrease our speed right now. And like, it'll take 50% longer or something, but in the future, it'll make us a lot faster. 
And as a product manager, it can be difficult to make that call because you're going to slow down the release now to eventually speed it up in the future. And that that's always a tension in software engineering and not unique to Tesla. It's something that's just a perennial challenge of <laughs> investing in infrastructure, investing in better coding, better coding standards, better test infrastructure will increase velocity in the future for future releases, but you don't feel that today. And if you're under the gun, it can be very hard to make those investments. And um, yeah, often- and it, it's also a theoretical future benefit too. You might think there's a high probability that it will accelerate you in the future, but there's a, a, a software philosophy that uh, the more the, the more gray hairs that come out of your beard, uh, you start to subscribe more and more, in my experience, to the, uh, you ain't gonna need it, the Yagni philosophy. <laughs> where you just focus on building exactly what's in front of you and not thinking about all the amazing things that you can unleash by refactoring this new framework and building for this idea that you have of what will things will be in the future because the exercise is it's more of an exercise in humility of thinking that by the time you would actually get to the point where you would be utilizing that so many other things will have changed that you're going to need something completely different anyways so you're you're kind of building for a future that will never exist yeah, exactly. So one of the other things he talked about was uh, define and drove the feature roadmap, drove the technical architecture for future features, and managed the implementation for the next exciting features to come. Ooh, exciting. So I, I don't think it's a surprise that there's more stuff coming. We've already, I mean, Tesla has outlined on their site that advanced autopilot is going to do auto lane change and, you know, highway entrance to highway exit and all the self-driving features. That but, came out right after the, you're, you're referring to the new autopilot page where they're yeah. talking about autopilot. That came out right around the same time too, right? When, when the, this, all these announcements were being made. Well, they, they republished it. It's some, some reason it got a lot of press again, the autopilot page, but that's been there since the hardware two came out in October. Oh, um, okay. So I think he's certainly referencing some of those features. And for folks who are not familiar with the software development process, especially in larger teams, there will often be uh, features that are going to take many, many months of development. Uh, And then they sort of move through this process of the design phase and the early implementation phase and then the validation phase and the rollout phase. And if you have a large enough team, you'll have multiple of those sort of rolling waves of features in different phases of development. And so as the VP of Autopilot Software, Chris would be privy and involved in uh, software at different stages of its development and release. And we know that Tesla will take many months sometimes to validate a feature before it's actually fully released uh, because Elon's tweeted about, you know, using high, high, high speed auto steer a month or two before it was even available to customers. So uh, I don't think it's a shock to people that there are features that aren't available yet that Tesla is already working on and developing and and validating. Um, But uh, it's at least good to know the the deep infrastructure work wasn't so intense that they couldn't even work on any new features. And now now would be the time they start on them. There's already those features uh, in the works and sort of coming through that process. So... um, I don't think it's a massive revelation, just sort of a good confirmation that there are more features coming that Tesla's already working on, already in development, and will be moving through that development process. Um, And I think it's just always fun being inside a company, knowing you have features that are going to come out and be released. Um, And for for the... the, Or frustrating. Or or frustrating. Yeah, or frustrating. 
it's hard. You're constantly editing yourself. Like, can I say this? I don't, I'm not sure. So you just have to say nothing. That's true. Um, Elon chooses not to edit himself. He'll just talk about what's coming. Um, <laughs> well, when you're at the top of the pyramid, you have that option. That's true. Um, so one of the other things he mentioned that I thought was pretty notable was that he said he grew the autopilot software team by over 50%, uh, and personally interviewed most of the accepted candidates. Um, so that's a, that's a pretty big, uh, boost. Uh, well, it's one, a relative number. We don't know what the absolute numbers are. Yeah. It, 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 there assume, could be three people and he hired three more. It could have been. Um, but one of, the, one of the roles of a VP in most tech companies is hiring. And that's a pretty big role um, since, you know, he's not going to be the one writing the majority of the code in autopilot. Uh, well, especially be, since he doesn't have an AI background, too. Sure. Yeah. He's going to be directing this team and overseeing the process. So, um I think that uh, I haven't done a, a recent LinkedIn search on the autopilot software team. I, I think I need to renew my LinkedIn pro membership oh, to really God. do that depth. I, I refuse to do that out of principle. Yeah. So I should dig into that more, but um, what, a, what know, an awful company to, to claim 50% is pretty good. Um, and then one of the other things he said was closely involved in the broader autopilot program, including future hardware support. So what do you think future hardware support means? I know we chat about this a little bit on the on Slack <laughs> and we had different opinions. Yeah, my, I mean, I, I will say my opinion is future hardware support could just mean the Model 3, right? It's the new model coming out and it's going to have uh, autopilot and, you know, it's it's going to have slightly different hardware configuration than uh, than the uh, than the S and the X, um, even the hardware 2s. Um, so yeah, I mean... It, that could just be in 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 thinking about how when whenever you write your resume or your CV or whatever, you always use like the most like florid language possible to to describe the amazing things that you've done, right? And you know, instead of saying something like you know worked on software for the for the upcoming Model Three, you would say like worked on software for upcoming future hardware platforms or something. So I don't know. I I, I think it could just apply to the Model Three. What did what did you think? I, I thought it was um, them exploring what the next iteration of the hardware suite would be, and um, either from the compute side or from the sensing side. Like they're uh, going to finally give in to LiDAR? Yeah, I think eventually they will. I think it's just a matter of having a commercialized price point that makes sense for cars that are shipping to customers and sort of so, in the hundreds of dollars instead of the many thousands of dollars. So maybe like this Tesla Semi, which has a higher selling price, might have LiDAR? Yeah, that's possible. I think the Semi potentially could. And I think that uh, still waiting on some of the solid state LiDAR um, from Velodyne and others to... Uh, start shipping uh, and, and sort of hit those price points. I think they're still in just sort of sample stage right now. So in the next few years, it seems like there will be uh, smaller LIDARs uh, that are more localized for, you know, less wide field of views that don't have the spinning 360 view, but you'd put four on a car, one on each corner. And it's then really something lost there, though, because the spinning thing is kind of cool. It is, like, it is. When you see the spinning thing, it, it has a very sort of, I don't know, Cylon kind of uh, sweeping, or even maybe even Knight Rider, too. Kit had that sort of sweeping LED lights in the front. Um, That's true. I don't know. There's something, I don't know, tangible, something sweeping around. And I don't Anyways, I'm, I'm babbling. I like no, it, no. though. No, I, I do think they are fun fun to see. and uh, Plus, they usually look like a hat on top of the vehicle. Yes. I don't want one on my car, but I don't mind looking at them when they're on these test vehicles. But would uh, you want one on your car if it meant you didn't have to drive? Uh, I would put up with it, but I would prefer it to be t- 
totally integrated and, and invisible, just like the radars are. I mean, I would drive around in the Oscar Mayer Wiener Mobile if it meant that it was driving itself. I mean, because who cares, right? I, I it's like guess. the it's like the old joke about uh, there was some I guess architect interviewed in in Paris about where's the, what's the best place to live in Paris, and he said the best place to live would be like on the Eiffel Tower because you wouldn't have to look at the damn thing. Mm, I um, guess they're showing your dislike for the Eiffel Tower, or at least actually, I quite like the Eiffel Tower. It just reminds I think me it's of great. It, 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 it. It's a famous quote that I, I but apparently not famous enough for me to remember who said it and. Um, that's a rotating light beam. Yeah. But the point, the point being, it doesn't really matter, right? Because you're, you're in it and you're not going to have to look at it. That's true. Um, speaking of hardware, uh, one, of the other, <laughs> one of the other changes that's happened is, uh, so uh, previously, Jim Keller, uh, who is a, uh, previously the vice president of autopilot hardware engineering, uh, was sort of the counterpart to Chris Latner, who was the VP of autopilot software engineering. And now that Chris has uh, left the company, uh, Jim Keller has been, uh, his, his portfolio, as they say, euphemistically, I guess, uh, has expanded to include hardware and software. Uh, and so he's been at the company since January of 2016, and he's quite, um, quite a, a well-respected person in his own right. He uh, started at... Um, at AMD, uh, most famous for his work at AMD, working on like the Athlon K7 chips, which I actually used in one of the computers oh. I built. Yeah, um, that, was, that was back in the 90s, right? The, yeah, in the uh, 90s. They were, they were competing with the first Pentiums. Yeah, they were fighting with the Pentiums. They were much lower cost. The K2000, I think it was like uh, 1.2 gigahertz. I was really excited to put that into my computer. Um, <laughs> Just, buying was it that from still Newegg. when they had the, the separate math coprocessor? Or, no, that was the 486s, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, right. this was sort of uh, the K2 chip and it was great and then um he then went on to work at a, a company called pa semi um which was a, a semiconductor design firm for mobile processors and that's actually the company that was acquired by apple in 2008 which has now gone on to incredible to do incredible things uh and he, so he worked on the a4 chip and the a5 chip at apple and um really was uh, instrumental in uh apple bringing uh, the chips in-house for their for their mobile devices and the iPads and the uh, iPhones, obviously, and, and Apple TVs. He then left Apple and went back to AMD, where he was working on the Zen processors. Um, and AMD's had sort of a resurgence because they now own ATI as well, Radeon. So they're sort of doing both the CPUs and the GPUs. Um, but he then joined Tesla. So What's interesting is Tesla doesn't yet make their own chips to that we know of that are in any of the vehicles, um, <laughs> but he's in charge of the hardware engineering for autopilot. So that would be all the sensors, as well as the selection of NVIDIA and any of the other chips that they want to use. And so he is now overseeing the software side of things. And the new hire, Andre, is um, sort of going to work with him, but not his direct report, um, since Andre will report into t to Elon. So just interesting reshuffling of different responsibilities. Um, but uh, it sounds like Jim is working out um, because he's, his, uh, his role has expanded. And, uh, and that would not usually happen if um, you were unhappy with someone's performance, especially in a, <laughs> someone departing the company. So one of the things for Andre that was sort of interesting was he, so, so Tesla's statement is, in his new role as director of AI and autopilot vision, 
Kaparthi will report to Musk directly, but he'll also work closely with Jim Keller, who uh, previously led Tesla's autopilot hardware division, but now oversees both hardware and software. Um, so, so that's Tesla's statement. They didn't say too much. They talked a little bit about his background. So I wanted to dig into his background a bit. So he uh, was born in Slovakia. Uh, he moved to Canada when he was 15. In 2005, he started his undergrad, went to the University of Toronto, and double major in computer science and physics, which is the same major as Elon. Uh, <laughs> and he had a minor in math. He then went on to, after that, straight to get his master's at the University of British Columbia um, in, uh, in master's of computer science and did uh, learning controllers for physically simulated figures. So basically uh, simulating robots in software. So starting to get into the, uh, the AI and robotics world. He then went to an internship in that summer uh, at Google Research uh, doing unsupervised deep learning for videos. So he was working on that project that uh, was fed a bunch of YouTube videos and discovered cats uh, <laughs> sort of um, spontaneously. Uh, and then he went to Stanford for his PhD in uh, deep learning and computer vision. And uh, his advisor is uh, Fei-Fei Li, who is um, an incredibly well-respected uh, computer, uh, computer vision and, and AI uh, person. So, um, what's so, so then after Stanford, he got his PhD, and now he had been working at OpenAI since 2016, uh, focusing on reinforce reinforcement learning, deep learning, and, and uh, generative models, so GANs. Um, and he also squeezed in a DeepMind internship, um, which is the company that Google bought uh, that actually worked on uh, the AlphaGo uh, project to, uh, to best the best humans at the game of Go. So <laughs> interestingly, almost no industry experience, no, I mean, zero automotive experience, right? zero experience at any tech company beyond internships. But... Um, incredibly smart, uh, has written many papers and published, and is extremely well respected in the uh, artificial intelligence industry for his work on uh, primarily on vision uh, networks. So convolutional neural networks um, for uh, in the application of detecting things inside of images and, and describing them. So just sort of um, intriguing that he's a director of AI. And I would point out to people that a director level title doesn't um, necessarily <laughs> imply a massive, massive team. Um, right. He could be like, essentially, it sounds like if I had to guess, he's leading research initiatives into, into this stuff and not uh, doing like VP level, like team organization and, and stuff like that. Yeah, it sounds like Jim Keller, who is a more seasoned executive who's worked at Apple and AMD and others for decades, is going to be leading sort of the team overall, but that uh, Andre is going to be the sort of supercharger, as it were, uh, of the AI side of things and infuse what Elon has been talking about of to really get autonomy right they want to solve this vision problem of how do you use cameras to detect what's going on? Because clearly humans can drive at their current level with, uh, with the pretty weak sensors of just our eyes. 
And if you were able to have eyes all around you, around the vehicle, you should be able to drive even better than a human. And the the gap right now is that the algorithms for uh, processing that image data are not yet good enough. And so you typically need to augment it with other sensors to uh, sort of hack the system to beat what a human could do. Well, yeah, and and even just to go beyond what what humans can do too. But um, yeah, yeah, make, I mean, it makes sense too that they they are fine. They found someone who's uh, deep into convolutional uh, neural networks because that's I mean they're based on like the visual cortex in the human brain. Like that's what inspired their designs. And Tesla is all in on uh, visual uh, inputs as being how they are going to pilot their cars. So it it there seems to be some synergy there. Right, because there are many strains to the AI research world. And so there are folks working on sort of control problems of how do you um, navigate a physical space with AI. There are people who are working on how do you uh, solve uh, sort of logic problems? How do you do language problems? Um, uh, how do you how do you deal with sort of the safety issues of AIs? Um, I mean, even just like synthesizing all of it into some sort of coherent, uh, you know, ultimately you've got a faster, slower, right, left is, is is your complete outputs, right? So you have to somehow synthesize all of that. And like, yeah, when you say control systems too, you automatically, my mind jumps right to like, you know, kind of smoothing everything too, because you don't want it to be like jerky and bouncing all over the place. And you have to have some sort of uh, meta level understanding of what's going on. Right. And so uh, his focus is going to be on the vision side, the vision sub-discipline inside of AI. And he even commented on Reddit uh, in, in a question. Uh, <laughs> so you know it's official. <laughs> well, he, I mean, he uses Reddit, so I'm going to yeah. use it as a source. Uh, and his, quoting, at least on the short, ter- short to medium term, the focus will be much more applied than what I've done at OpenAI. Uh, and we'll use techniques more along the lines of convnets trained with supervised learning at scale and deployed on an embedded system. But on a longer term, I certainly hope to remain in the research world to some extent. So it was sort of the question was asked, are you going to keep doing research at Tesla or what's going on? So, Oh, I see. When I hear that, I, I think like, will you still be publishing? This is kind of yeah, what I, I, think what that's I what, hear there. Yeah, yeah. certainly. And, and so he had published many papers. And so now I think he's really going to be helping the team apply what a lot of this research has been done in the labs and at university in the real world and at Tesla scale and for a very specific domain of make these cars drive themselves, won't you please? Um, <laughs> yeah, we're going into applied science here. And that's a very different kind of uh, kind of world. And one, one of the things that he has talked about in, in some of the... Uh, presentations he's given, he talks about how many times when when uh, people have been given problems that would require um, computer vision or uh, natural language processing in the past, that pr- practitioners would sort of, um, you know, if you had this task of, okay, I'm going to give you an image and you need to describe in, a, in an English sentence what's in this image, that people... Uh, might take that problem and say, okay, well, I'm going to use a package like OpenCV, which is a classic computer vision uh, package to do facial detection and object detection. And then I'll pass that to uh, a system to basically classify all of those into these labels that I've given it and do some other feature extraction. 
and do classical vision on that. And then I'm going to have a separate system that's going to be able to, well, I need to, I'm going to need to be able to like interpret human, like English phrases and sentences. So I need to use something like uh, core NLP, which is a natural language processing system to detect sentences and stemming and lemmatization and all these different facets to doing uh, classical natural language processing. And then I need to find a way to sort of merge those two systems together and that's how people traditionally might ap approach that problem pre, you know, 2015 kind of era. <laughs> Back in the old days. Exactly. Very, very, very recently. T time's uh, moving very fast right now. Yeah, exactly. And, and so, but his point was, uh, instead, if you took a neural network approach, you would come at it with a very different mindset. You would say, okay, what's my input? I've got this uh, image, which is a set of pixels, which can be represented as a three-dimensional sort of vector space of numbers. Um, and then I have an output where I want to have these English sentences. And I'm going to figure out how to basically feed it a massive amount of data on one side and get this output of these sentences. And that maybe what I can do is actually just take two neural networks, one convolutional neural network to detect what's in the images, and then a, a recurrent neural network, an RNN, to basically predict from seeing massive, massive amounts of language from training data of, of uh, you know, of, of phrases to predict what these phrases will be given the input of the neural network of the convolutional, the, sorry, the output of the convolutional neural network. And so basically saying, let's just put two neural networks together that are for different purposes and solve this problem with really big data. And one of the things that he sort of talked about was that he's just a big fan of uh, taking neural networks, uh, very uh, sparsely labeled information and very simple models and trying to uh, make those work instead of the classical approach of lots and lots of little features that are engineered and perfectly tuned and dialed in that that there's this sort of new approach of just this brute force of massive amounts of data and very simple models that can achieve results that were sort of unimaginable un, un even a few years ago. And so while he may not have a lot of practical experience, he deeply understands what is possible today and that if you had been a natural language processing person or a computer vision person for the past decade, many of those skills might actually be in inhibitances for you because <laughs> you would believe that's how you would attack this problem and it's not necessary now. So that is just sort of really intriguing uh, that he, he's worked on these problems before and he comes at it from the approach of what's most cutting edge uh, and seems to be the most uh, pro promising new direction for how you solve these problems with neural networks instead of um, historical methods that just are not competitive anymore. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely the way uh, industry is moving, right? Lots of big data and uh, train your systems uh, from there. So one of the one of the very specific papers he wrote is this one called Dense Cap, which I felt was particularly um, relevant to Tesla because it actually allows you to take an image and classify up to like 20 or 30 different things inside of the image. So one of the images is just sort of a photo of people working inside of a, like an office. And some of the labels are people in the background, sign on the wall, man wearing a white shirt, man with black hair, white laptop on a table, man sitting on a table, 
woman wearing a black shirt, chair is brown, man wearing blue jeans. And there's all these bounding boxes all around this image. No, they're and, in a stump town. This oh, it's stump town. Oh yeah, you're right. You're right. It's a, is this in Portland? I'm not sure where this is. We're both, we're both looking at this image right now. And I think it is a coffee shop. It looked like a startup because Sorry, they all just, are on their laptops. We got into coffee shops here and now, now shit just got real here. We're, <laughs> this is coffee. What coffee shop is this? This is, Any, this is Pacific Northwest coffee coming in here. All right. Anyways, there is a massive amount of bounding boxes, and this is, in one glance, it got all of this information. And it's sort of like, it might take you 10 or 15 minutes as a human to describe all the different things that you're seeing. Um, And it's incredible that this was just trained, and this was processed in a a third of a second. And it's very low res, too. It's only a 720 by 600 image, too, which is pretty impressive. So like you, that, we tend to think that like more megapixels is important, but it really just might not be. So, so that's really cool that you could do that bounding box. So you can imagine, okay, you're looking at a frame in 260 milliseconds. Tell me everything you see. I see a truck. I see three Audis. I see a BMW. I see two road signs. I see three, uh, you know, traffic signals and I see a police officer and an ambulance. Okay. That seems pretty relevant. <laughs> that's a pretty to exciting, Tesla. exciting road you're on. That seems, that seems relevant to Tesla. And then the other piece is, okay, we, we've got all this data coming in from all the cars. We've got all the video coming in. Uh, what, what the heck is in it? We've, we've got hours and hours and hours of video. Uh, we need to find some of the interesting bits inside this video so we can train the model and identify what's going on. So his paper also described a method to basically search through all any video any set of frames for whatever you want with natural language so basically doing the reverse oh so like what you're saying is if you have like you're saying it has the coffee shop there and it's telling you all the things it's seeing like and at one point it might say that there is an apple uh, laptop on the table that going the other way you would say show me all the photos with apple laptops on tables and then they would spit those out yeah, exactly. So he has a, a, um, an example in the paper where he uh, types in the phrase head of a giraffe and it, pu- it outputs like 20 different images with bounding boxes around just the head of a giraffe, like little red boxes just around the head and it zooms in and it's like giraffe, 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 giraffe. It's like, it, but not it, in the Stumptown coffee shop, not in the Stumptown coffee shop. These are on the Sahara. It looks like oh. very impressive. And then there's one that is obviously very applicable to Tesla. It says red and white sign. And it pulls out stop signs at crazy angles, different levels of color, stop signs in Japan that have different type on them, and very tiny ones as well that are like, I, I don't even know if I would detect it as a, as a stop sign <laughs> at the resolution that it's there. And then it zooms it in. So you can imagine that Tesla is trying to validate their stop sign detection right. and really make sure that that's perfect. And so they just say, okay... Let's search for, with this algorithm, stop sign, and then make sure that our detection algorithm in the car, which might be a little bit more simplistic, a little bit faster, because 260 milliseconds isn't really real time. Um, if you're like trying- four, four hertz, right? Like four, four frames per second at that point? Yeah, exactly. So, so that wouldn't quite work at 30 frames per second. You know, it's, it's maybe uh, four times too slow for the car. But for offline sort of processing and validation, that might be really good. Or just for training, saying, okay, let me identify all the red and white signs and say stop. And well, then use that to back propagate into the algorithm to train their stop sign detection to make it more robust. Because to get all these signs and everything, you don't want 80%. You don't want 85%. You need like 99.9% accuracy. And 
this might just be a great way to do some of that exploration. And so he's just done a lot with <laughs> image recognition and image detection. And uh, yeah, so this yeah. just one example, applying it to all the Tesla data set is probably pretty fun. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's got to be pretty interesting. Um, and, you know, I was just kind of thinking, too, about, I mean, I don't want to get too deep into this, but like if you're, even if you're updating at like four times per second with the sort of high-level identification algorithms, you might have uh, like tracking algorithms that update at like 100 times a second. So once you actually identify a certain thing as a stop sign, then you might actually be able to have like a simpler algorithm, like track that through the scene, right? Because it's not yep. like it's not like a stop sign is right there and then it disappears and comes back like in ten seconds somewhere else, right? It's there's a very linear progression to how a car is moving through space. Um, so, anyways, it, it could even be that even at like four frames a second, it's still quite useful if it's combined with other algorithms that that operate more at like sixty frames a second. Well, and one of the other big projects he did when he was actually at Google was uh, this project called Large Scale Video Classification with con Convolutional Neural Networks. So they uh, took 1 million, 1.1 million YouTube videos about people doing things with sports. And they had 487 uh, labels uh, for like mixed martial arts and equestrian and basketball and baseball and cricket and all these different sort of um, labels you might apply to a video with sports. Quidditch? Quidditch, possibly, maybe. Okay. Um, and so they trained a big neural network uh, with uh, spatiotemporal features. So That's a $5 word. It is. Uh, it's a hyphenated $5 word. So <laughs> Wow. So most of the stuff we've seen and uh, in the tests we did a long time ago with the neural network episode were around just the static images. So even though a video is really 30 frames, uh, it's 30 sort of static frames just played together, um, there are special things you can do when you know that it's video because to your point, as you just mentioned, if you see a stop sign in frame one, it's very likely you're going to see a stop sign in frame two, and you may even be able to predict where you'll see it in frame two. And right, there's then, only a certain amount of distance it'll probably travel from one frame to the next. Exactly, and so then you can reduce the amount of work you have to put into your algorithms to detect it, um, and uh, you can do some sort of smoothing and, and whatnot. So anyways, um, he, he basically built another algorithm. Instead of just using sort of the, um, the three channels of the red, green, and blue of the, video, of the image, you add a fourth dimension of time that you train on so that you can also predict where something should be given the timestamp in a video. And so he was doing real-time classification of like mixed martial arts and what, what he was seeing in the scene and all these sports videos um, so that, yeah, you could, you could do this classification um, and have sort of much smoother and, and more robust uh, classification given the fact that you have 30 frames to look at instead of just one. Um, and so he's done work with video, which we know Tesla's recording little <laughs> videos. So the more that I did research into the past projects that he's been involved with and the research he's done, it's very clear that uh, his experience will be useful to Tesla and the types of problems that they will have and need to solve from an AI point of view. And then the question is just sort of how well are they able to integrate those into the the constraints they have in the car and their own data centers and whatnot. But And how well does he get along with Elon? And how well does he get along? Um, with Elon and the rest of the team, but certainly extremely well qualified to, to help contribute to some of the problems that they 
you know, have to solve. Um, not that it's like a bad situation that problems, it's just th- the types of problems they have to do self-driving. A lot of the work he's done would be well, well applied. So I think it's a good thing for Tesla that he's there. I think for Jim Keller, uh, it will be yet to be seen how he manages a software team. Um, but he's probably a good executive and many good executives can, can manage people. And at that level, uh, it's not, you know, always, um, always just about what your past experience is. It's just like, do you know how to get stuff done in the company and in the organization? So um, I think it is uh, good that they have Andre on board. I think it probably would have been great to have Chris there uh, if everything had gone smoothly with the way they work together, but clearly it didn't. So to your point earlier, it's better to get out than try and make it work if it's not going to work out. Um, (laughs) Yeah, just not, and also just stressing, it's important not to read too much into it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, people come and go from companies all the time and it's not a bad or good thing. It's just sort of how it, how it goes. Um, yeah, it I mean, doesn't mean Tesla is bad or Chris is bad or anything. I mean, it, everyone could be operating perfectly and, and it sometimes won't work. So right. n- no, no value judgment there. It's just sort of the state. It's just he's not there anymore. So <laughs> just interpersonal interactions, right? It's just humans being humans. And that's just something we all have to live with. For, for now until the uh, AIs take over. All right. So um, if people have any other comments or questions, they, where can they reach us, Mike? Uh, you can reach us on our website on the World Wide Web at theteslashow.com. Uh, you can comment there. If you would like to send us a tweet, you can uh, utilize social media at twitter.com and tweet at us at our screen name at the Tesla Show. Um, and then uh, we are also on Reddit. Uh, if you would like to engage in longer form conversations, uh, you can reach us there at r slash uh, the Tesla show. A little bit of a retro uh, description of the internet and uh, username. Yeah, and well, you names. know, where I'm souring on social media lately, it's it's. Uh, I'm not sure it's it's a universal good. So who knows? Deeper conversation. That's true uh, for our after dark episodes, which don't exist. Um, <laughs> or do they? Do, <laughs> maybe they will. All right, cool. I'll talk to you later, Mike. All right, bye.